My Mother, The Person and the Patient is an original podcast written and hosted by me, Fatuma Kuso. This podcast is about my mother, Timira Abdusamid Muhammad, Ayaya we call her, and that's the Somali word for grandmother, and her great-grandchildren call her Ayaya too, and that is their way of saying great-grandmother. I must admit, being a caregiver to my mother has been and is one of the most rewarding experiences in my life. I'm often in awe and grateful of the opportunity and the capacity to take care of my mother and walk with her on this journey called living with Alzheimer's. However, along the gratitude comes challenges. And one of those, and I would say the biggest challenge is counting on the support that should be coming to my house to help me out take care of my mother, especially in the morning when I need to get to work on time and all I have is less than two hours from six o'clock to quarter to eight if I were to make it to work on time. That means if the person coming into my house is five minutes late, I am going to be late for work. So with that comes with this desperate feeling, this panic mode that sets in the pit of my stomach every morning by the time 6.40 comes around. Worried that would the person show up? Would they coming on time? Would I be able to leave the house on time? So for example, yesterday I woke up, got myself ready and I wait and I wait and I wait and by the time seven o'clock comes I am in a full panic mode because now I know I'm already 10-15 minutes behind the mark that will allow me to get to work on time. So I call the agency and somebody answers and, and I explain my situation and I'm trying to rush through the explanation so I could get to the point and she could help me out. However, that didn't work. I spelled my mother's name in five different ways. Is it 2M or 1N? Is it an ED or AD? And I explained over and over again. I had to spell my mother's first name. I had to get my address, spell my first name, my last name, give her our phone number. And then she says, hold on. And she's gone and she comes back two, three times. And I said, what is going on? And she said, I cannot pull your mother's information. And I said, what do you mean you cannot pull in my mother's information? And I told her, aren't you such a such agency? And she said, yes. And she asked me, what's my address? And when I gave her my address, she said, oh, no wonder. That's why. Because you are calling from Windsor and this call's been routed to London, Ontario, because the Windsor office doesn't open until 8 o'clock. It makes no sense to me it's not open, but if it's not, there is a reason why the call is routed to you, so you can get the information. She said, I have no access to the information of the clients in Windsor. And I said, then why is the phone routed to your office? And it's it makes no sense to me for her to say, I don't know who your mother is. And then it took me another five minutes. And then at the end, I said, listen, 
I am losing time. If you cannot help me, I'm just going to get off this phone and try and take care of my mother before I have to make it to work. And she said, if you need help, you need to stay on the line. Now I feel like I'm being given ultimatum. So I stay on the phone and she's gone and few minutes and then she comes back by then I lost 12 minutes of my time on this phone instead of taking care of my mother and then she comes back and she says there is nothing I can do for you all I can do is to forward the message you left earlier and our discussion to the local office in Windsor and they will contact you and I said that's why you kept me on the phone for almost 15 minutes and she said I had to figure things out, don't I? But you could see my entire day now it's impacted. I am frantic, trying to get my mother ready, out of the bed, showered, cleaned, and in her wheelchair, all in under half an hour. By the time I make it to my car, eight o'clock, 15 minutes later than I should have been in my car, and I'm in a total panic mode, also, we are in May, and if you live anywhere in Ontario, you know there are constructions every turn you take in this province, everywhere in this province, I believe, and I already know the main road I take to get to work has been reduced to one lane since, I think, May the 11th or the 12th, and that will continue throughout the summer. I'm not complaining about the work that needs to be done so the sewer system is working right and the roads are working but then I am already thinking about that Central Avenue is reduced to one lane and I might be stuck there. My kid might be standing by the door waiting for me. It was just a miracle that I made it to work without getting into a car accident, driving the freeway like a mad woman, trying to get to work. I understand the person on the other side of the phone has no power to do anything. She's just telling me what's in front of her on the computer. But I want to tell you, I want to remind you, if you are getting a little bit older yourself like I am, or you have loved one that needs advocating, I want you to know our healthcare system, especially the long-term care, that especially if you want to keep your loved one at home, is broken. And you need to have so many layers and so many contingencies of what happens if and what happens if a, and what happens if B, and what happens if C. Those are the layers you need to have, and you need to have a whole lot of patience. I had to develop a bottomless well of patience and limitless skills of advocacy, and that has made all the difference. When you listen to how we arrived at my mother's diagnosis and what followed, it's so easy to see her just as the patient, to see her as nothing more than the disease that reduced her to shell of her old self. But I want also to tell you about my mother, the person, the fierce woman that 
told her stories unapologetically, celebrating the beautiful parts and harsh realities equally. I want to share with you the stories she told us about her life as a girl growing up in a small village, the tales that marked her adulthood. I want to share with you all her losses and the ultimate winnings. The following chapter is one of those stories reconstructed from my childhood memory. Timira pushed herself through the day, moving with deliberation, one step before the other. She did every action with the intent of keeping herself grounded. She smiled, however forced, at the sight of her parents, Farah and the twins. She made sure to give thanks for the meal that sustained her. She walked the field after the evening meal, hoping to get her body tired. But as the silence of the darkness blanketed the village, she found no rest. The fear of another day ahead welled within her as she lay there, unable to sleep. So when her father called her into the room one evening, on her way back from the field, Timiro feared he'd noticed her restlessness. Her stepmother was next to him on the stools in the little sitting area in their bedroom. He smiled when she approached. The twins were sleeping in their cots, their breaths filling the room with the soothing air. Sit. He offered her the empty seat across from him. A man came asking for your hand in marriage, her father said as soon as she sat down. A man? Timura let the two words ask the big question that filled her mind. It's that man. Faluma must have seen the utter confusion on Timira's face. The one we saw at the market the other day, she added. Market? The man had seen her once from a distance three days ago and was now asking to marry her. How did he know she was unmarried? Timira wanted to say she had no desire to get married, but she didn't. This might be her way out of the village, she thought herself, even though she'd never admit to it, not out loud anyway. But she knew she had outgrown the log cabin walls that made up her home. A longing for something she couldn't name had taken over long before the news of the proposal came, before she heard the tales of adventure her friends Saadia and Ambiya had brought with them. The desire to leave the village lingered months before the man came asking for her hand in marriage. Perhaps with an open mind she could find her own home. I accept the proposal, Timira said. I'm ready to marry him. She'd made no inquiries about what the man did for a living. Was he widowed, divorced, never been married? He's not one of us, her father said. He's not even from Somalia. Her father's voice became forceful. Where did he say he was from? He asked her stepmother. Mombasa, Kenya, Fatima responded, but he told you about his tribe. 
her stepmother said because it was standard for each tribal elder to verify any man coming to marry one of their women. The wedding process was detailed. Yes, we know he belongs to a Somali tribe in Kenya. Timur's father's voice came low, mimicking the distance that would fall between her and everyone and everything that mattered. It's hard to know what his family is like, how his father treats his mother, all the things we would know if he didn't come from afar. But you spoke to his elder. You know his tribe, Timira said. But her father began perhaps to say more. Her stepmother stopped him with a wave of her hand. Timira already accepted the proposal. Silent seconds passed before she continued. Abdisemit, give them your blessing. Fatima's voice cracked. All they need is your blessing. Timur's father gave a deep, unresigned sigh. My peace be upon you, he said before he stood up, picked up his shawl, wrapped it around his shoulders and left the house. A bang of worry engulfed Timura at the sight of her father's retreating frame. Was she making the right decision? Leaving home again and following a man she didn't know at all? Caught between doubt and jubilation, her thoughts raised. My Allah guide you, Father said, as if she'd heard Timura's thoughts. You made the right decision. Timura's throat grew tight and her tongue heavy. She stared at the wall. Getting married is like throwing a dart in a dark room. Her stepmother's attempt to comfort added to the doubt that riddled Timur's mind. The aim is never clear, Father said. You're not the only one going at it scared. Father spoke with so much confidence that Timur wanted to reach out and borrow some of her strength. We all did it blindly. If her stepmother intended to reassure her she didn't, the uncertainty she stated rattled Timur's already shaken resolve. I know you want me to say all would be well, her stepmother said. No one has a looking glass to see the hidden things. Timur tried to see her stepmother's optimistic spin, but each word compounded her mounting apprehension, the decision daunting. But in a style only her mother would have understood, Timur pushed her fear and doubt of the unknown and went through with it. Let's plan. Timur's stepmother took her to her room two days after her father blessed the union. To Fatima's dismay, Timur insisted on a small ceremony. Something simple, she repeated. Agreeing to an elaborate ceremony like she'd done when she'd married Nietzsche Cain with the men dragging the entire affair through a week-long celebration. I don't want all the women in the village to come and debate over my dress, henna design, hairdo, and jewelry, Timur explained to her stepmother. That would be too much to deal with. Hearing them ask about the new husband, his home, and his wealth would be topics she couldn't bear to hear. 
Only Marian and Saadia and your closest friends. But you didn't have a mother last time. And now you do. Fatima tried to convince Timiro. Every girl deserves that. I'm not a girl. Not anymore. That statement must have stopped her stepmother from arguing about the value observing the tradition. From then on, things moved at a dizzying speed. Unlike her first marriage, the initial meeting, the dowry negotiation, and the ceremony happened within the same week. In the morning of the ceremony, Timre stood before the wooden chest that held what was left of her mother's belongings. She lifted the lid, pulled out a red guntine made of alindi and gilded with a decorative border. I'll wear this. She wrapped the long, stretchy fabric around her before she tied it over her shoulder and draped it around her waist. She pushed the two edges of the waist loop. She insisted on a very simple henna design, not the elaborate design her stepmother wanted. Some of the guests had bigger and more elaborate designs than you, Fatima complained vehemently. The bride should have the best of everything. This is your day, not theirs. Whether Fatima was upset with Timira not getting something big and flashy or, or with the guests for upsetting her was hard to tell. But either way, Timira wasn't bothered by it. It wasn't the day she was interested in. It was what followed, leaving the village behind that excited her. The walk from her parents' home to the bus depot along with her husband dragged on for a long time. The rays of the morning sun glittered, painting the shape of tree branches on the ground beneath. The small pebbles protruding from the brown earth appeared to be moving, galloping forward in a rhythmic pattern. Timir's father and stepmother were on, each carrying one of the twins. Her siblings, thick wavy curls, covered their tiny faces. Her baby brother and sister hid their heads in the shoulders of the parents carrying each, lifted it out, stared at each other, and buried their faces again. They were making a game of hide-and-go-seek. Walking next to her husband, Timiro held Farah's hand tightly. No one said anything all that time. The only sound coming to Timiro's ears was the satisfied cooing and giggling from the twins in their parents' arms. When they reached the bus depot, her stepmother put the baby sister on the ground beneath her feet. She pulled a wooden bowl filled with dried meat, soaked in butter out of a large sack of her back. Here, she placed it into Timira's hands. Put it between your feet when you sit so it doesn't spill. She reached inside the sack and took out a small cloth bag with dates and nuts for the road, she said. Timiro set the sack and ball on the ground and gathered Fadoma in her arms in a tight hug. Her arms wrapped around her stepmother's back and she felt her chest rise and fall quickly. She didn't know who started but soon Timiro and Fadoma were sobbing loud. 
Timura dropped her hands on her side. Go with God, her stepmother said. Timura moved from her father to the twins, hugging and kissing them. Go with God, she repeated after each embrace. She stepped closer to Farah and hugged him. He took her hand and held her on even after she kissed him. She pulled her hand out of his grasp as gently as she could. Timura picked up the food, turned around, and followed her husband to the bus. She knew it would be painful, but she didn't think leaving would be such an ordeal. She sat down in the bus and placed a ball of food between her legs. Still holding the dates and nuts in one hand, she focused all her attention on breathing. A long minute passed before Timura twisted her body around and faced her family. By then, the bus had pulled out and was heading to the main road. She watched her family standing there. Her father held one of the twins in one arm and the other wrapped over her stepmother's shoulder. Farah stood between them. His eyes were fixed on the ground beneath his feet. Like a painting on a large canvas, the image of her family grew faint as the bus continued to move away until the frame that held their appearance dwindled into nothing. Their last words, go with God, echoed in her mind as she turned around and faced front. My mother, the person and the patient, can be found in Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to follow, like, and share, and join me next week as I share with you another episode of my mother's journey as both the person and the patient. Thank you.